Well, God, our Father, you're the author of life and the source of every good gift. We have nothing we have not received. You loved us when we were unlovely. You protected us when we were unaware of danger. You pursued us when we chased after idols. You should receive endless honor, yet we think so little of your worth. We bring sin. We ask for grace. We bring flaws. We ask forgiveness. We bring weakness. We ask for help. We ask you to intervene in our vile and violent world. Would you support those who free the oppressed? Would you restrain those who oppress the free? Would you honor those who love your truth? Would you humble those who despise your law? Would you restrain evil in the land? Would you purge sin from our hearts? Would you stretch out your hand so the rebels tremble? Would you send forth your spirit so that rebels believe? Would you open blind eyes so that Christ will be seen? Would you awaken cold hearts so that Christ will be loved? May we be humbled and comforted by the all-seeing God. May we be transformed by the sacrifice and triumph of the Son of God. May your beauty be our joy, your will be our goal, and your heart be our home. We ask that you would replace selfishness with love and self-pity with gratitude. We ask that you would calm our anxious hearts, soothe our hurting hearts, and embolden our fearful hearts. Help us to follow wherever you lead and to obey whatever you say. Help us to love the role of serving and cherish the privilege of giving. Help us to pray always, Father, hallowed be your name. And we ask that for every noble thing we put our hand to, would we be blessed by the power of the Spirit. Hear our prayer because of Jesus' name. Answer our prayer for the glory of your name. In Christ we pray. Amen. On July 27, 1999, Barry Sanders, a 10-year veteran of running back for the Detroit Lions, I think he's coming up, maybe he's not, any PowerPoint help in the back? There it goes. We know that, we know that running back, don't we? Ten-year running back for the Detroit Lions shocked the sports world when he announced his retirement from the National Football League. He was 31 years old. He was at the prime of his career and only 1,500 yards away from breaking the all-time rushing record of Walter Payton. In a short press release, Sanders said, the reason, I, okay, the reason I'm retiring is very simple. My desire to exit the game is greater than my desire to remain in it. Had Barry Sanders played just four more years, he would have earned $47 million more dollars. Yet even that amount of money was not enough to stop his burnout. Burnout is an unbelievable, dangerous thing. It happens in every uh, phase of life. And we know, of course, that at the professional sports level, of course, it's going to happen, either physically or mentally. Uh, it's going to happen. And so there's a time. But what we don't want to happen is that somebody who follows God could ever come to a place in their life where they're saying, I am ready to exit the game. The title of my sermon this morning is Do Not Lose Heart, and it comes from the first verse of 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. 
If there was ever anybody who should have lost heart, it should have been the guy who wrote this verse, the Apostle Paul. In every city he preached, he was either beaten, mocked, or run out. And then sometimes the places where he would plant churches, and I was just telling a family a minute ago, we planted this church 18 years ago. Sometimes when he would leave a city where he planted a church, they would turn against him because they listened to false teachers say that Paul wasn't the real deal. And so when you look at all that he faced from opposition to rejection, you say, why didn't Paul burn out? And the answer is because he was motivated by the power and the promises of the gospel. They encouraged him in four ways. We'll look at three of them today. The gospel connects us with a transforming God. Number two, the gospel frees us from manipulating outcomes. Three, the gospel heals spiritual blindness. And number four, which we'll look at next week, the gospel gives clarity for our suffering. But this is how this begins. The gospel connects us with a transforming God. And that's what Paul meant when he said, because we have this, we don't lose heart. Whenever you read a verse that begins with therefore, you know that what he just said has been explained like in the previous section. What ministry is he talking about that said, I'm not disheartened because of this ministry? Well, he describes it at the end of the previous chapter when he says, and we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, looking at God. We're, ever, we're being transformed and changed every day into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the key word in that verse is the word unveiled, because it's used three times in chapter 3, which lets you know, key word, key word, key word. So when Paul says unveiled, he means, I see God clearly now, and I, I haven't before, exactly as we heard in Evie's testimony. I see him. I'd missed him all my life. But Paul is saying, I'm not discouraged because with all of this opposition rejection, I still see the love of God. When you think about veils, you think about weddings, and the purpose of a bride's veil is that she cannot fully be seen by her by her husband until the right time. So in the Old Testament, this concept of veil is interesting. Moses used to go on top of a mountain, meet with God while the people of Israel were below, and the glory firestorm of God was so great on top of the mountain, lightning, thunder, and the presence of God. Moses' face shone so brightly, he used to cover it with a veil so that he was coming down the mountain. He wouldn't utterly frighten the people. So Moses had a veil because of the abundance of the glory of God in his life. But this chapter says there was another veil over the people's eyes because they had not seen the glory of God. It said whenever Moses is read, that means whenever the Old Testament is read, whenever the words of God are read to them, a veil, a covering, a spiritual force keeps them from seeing God. Because if you follow the, old, the people in the Old Testament, what they were into was like they would come to church for information. Like I'm coming to get informed. Get to know facts. And then they would want to know the rules. So they came to church thinking this is a place where they talk about rules and they talk about information. And their hearts were veiled 
Because, again, back to Evie's testimony, they were not desperate to know God. They were satisfied with rules. They were satisfied with information, so their hearts were covered with a spiritual force, a lack of desire to really know the Lord. And look what happens when you come to the Lord. When anybody ever turns to the Lord, the veil is removed and they can see the living God. Everything becomes deliriously joyful at that point. A walk across a campus, a, a, a cup of coffee in the morning, a, an email from a friend, all of a sudden it's a gift from God because you see that all things are from Him as the band just sang, the goodness of the Lord. You can see Him that He's good and that He, he loves you. So that's what Paul says. I'm not discouraged because all of us that have come to Christ now have unveiled faces and we can see the fullness of God's love. He's our father and he's our leader and our guide and he's the one who has forgiven us of, of our sin. You know, we had a radiologist in the, in the first service and we were talking about the old school radiology how an image is transferred onto that old cassette that they used to hold up. And so you would have this bright burst of radiation that would come out of this machine and it would pass right through your skeletal system. And then it would be imprinted on this phosphorus-coated uh, cassette. And so the radiologist, you know, he never had to try to draw this person's body on this cassette copy now where the it's the power of the light passing through transferred the image of the skeleton onto that piece of paper this is what happens when we spend time with god his glory passes into our body and he changes us simply by us continually looking at him and seeing him for who he is that's how change happens I love how Alexander McLaren says this. You have been trying half your lifetime to cure your faults and to make yourselves stronger. Try this other plan. <laughs> Cease from self and fix your eyes on the Savior until His image imprints itself on your whole nature. I, I just talked with a a man at the end of the first service that he's going to take some time away this week and head off uh, and enjoy nature with his Bible. And he said he'd been struggling with some things that were defeating him. And he says, I need to go spend time looking at Jesus. Uh, I called Evie the other day and said, do you need help? He said, I feel foolish now. Do you, do you need help writing your testimony? I was so glad I didn't touch that thing. She said, no, I just need time away. And she said, I'm so, she said I don't know how it's going to look, but what I would prefer is to just go watch a film about a movie about Jesus. I don't know how many of you are into the series now called The Chosen. It's the best life of Christ uh, film I've ever seen. She said, I just think I'm going to go watch The Chosen. Just If I just get my eyes on Christ, then he'll give me what to say. This is how you're changed in life. The radiation machine of God's glory is imprinted on your heart. When you can't change all those things and addictions and hates and worries, you stare at him and the radiation of his glory changes you. 
why you come to church and sing and listen to teaching. He's the one who changed you. And Paul said, that's why I'm not discouraged because God is changing me moment by moment. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting here today and say, I don't feel changed. I don't understand what's happening in my life. It doesn't matter. Whenever you're sitting in the presence of the Lord, looking at God and worshiping Christ through songs or hymns or scripture, he is doing something. And you get to the end of your life and you'll fill out and realize he changed you more and more into the image of God. Do you know that a spark plug, the fire that gaps in, in a spark plug, it's such a small little gap, like 1 64th of an inch. But over the lifetime of a spark plug, that fire is five miles long. So you just come Sunday after Sunday looking at God and he changed you. And Paul says, I'm being changed and God is at work in my life. No, I'm not discouraged. Number two, the gospel frees us from manipulating outcomes. So here's the Apostle Paul preaching in a culture that was far more secular than ours. Everybody's hearts were covered with information and religious rules, and they weren't interested in seeking God. You got a lot of people in our culture right now that are not interested in God. And here my job is to persuade you to seek God. It could be very discouraging. You say, what can I do? What can I say today? You know, I meet this guest, I meet this guest, and I, I'm, you know, people are new to this. What can I say? I can't say anything. It's not my job to figure out what to say. And this is what Paul said. I'm not going to try to reach my culture by being slick. He said, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. He said, so I'm not going to try to manipulate you into believing. Like, I'm not going to make a false promise to you that God's going to save your life. He's going to protect your business. Rescue your marriage. I'm not going to distort the word of God. Distort is a, a Greek word which means... It, it paints the picture of someone serving wine to their guest, and the host wanted to save money. The word distort means to mix, so he mixed water with the wine so it would last longer. And he presented to the wine, the wine to his guest as pure wine, but it wasn't pure. He mixed it. So God says, Rich, don't mix the message. Tell them everything about God. Tell them about heaven. Tell them about hell. Tell them about God's love. Tell them about God's wrath. Tell them how much God loves them, and then tell them how much God demands from them. Tell them everything. But don't water down the wine just so you can fill up a church. So Paul said, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you everything about the will of God. Why not? Why, Paul said, why am I not going to, why would I do that? Why, why am I not going to water down the message? He said, because it would be shameful. He said, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Whether you like what I'm saying today or not, you know what I love knowing? 
that I can look in your eyes and say, I told you the truth. I loved you enough to not flatter you, not listen to your ego, not say something that was culturally cool. Because at the end of every message, I go out, you all leave, we lock up, I walk out into my truck, Lisa calls me and says, what time are you going to be home? And on the way home, I have to answer one question. Did I say everything that was in the text as God had written it? I have to answer that, yes or no, or did I try to please man and compliment man? Saturday night is an interesting thing for me. It's because my, I'm normally finished writing and I start developing all my PowerPoint slides. And I love when I finish my PowerPoint presentation, which averages around 35 slides, that I can look and say, I'm going to speak for 35 minutes and 35 things that I'm saying are backed up by Scripture. I know it's not me, in my opinion. The goal of teaching is not to impress you or persuade you to like me, though I prefer to be liked. But I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be so weak that I form my words around that desire to be liked. My goal as a teacher is not even to persuade you to like God. That's not my goal. My goal is to, uh, to warn you about the deceitfulness of sin, the danger of the coming wrath of God, and His delight in forgiving you and adopting you and making you sons and daughters of God. The greatest danger the world faces, this is big, what's going to follow this statement. The greatest danger the world faces is not being ready to meet God. Therefore, the greatest need the world has is to be prepared to meet God. And that is my joyous privilege. So what's the calling of the church? What are we doing here today? We're either doing something very important or as in, in COVID terms, it's trying to find out what businesses can open. I'm doing something very essential or not. And I think this gathering, the reason I pushed for it, along with the leadership that we have to come back, is I'm saying it's so essential to prepare people to meet God and to walk with Him daily. This is the most essential thing I think is being done in Spartanburg this week. Most people don't understand the purpose of the church. They think the church, let me tell you what the church is called to do. From cover to cover, you'll read this. We are called to preach the wonder and beauty of Jesus Christ. So that you'll see him, believe him, receive him, be born in your life with new life by him. And then give your life to expressing his beauty and love to family, neighbors, co-workers, and the nations. And every day, every week, we're trying to redo that whole scenario. Here's why. Do you want society to change? I mean, we are in a mess right now. Do you know how society changes? Society changes when individuals change. And the only way that individuals change is when they come in contact with the living God. 
The purpose of the government is not to change people. It can't. The purpose of the government is to restrain people from living however they want. If there were no speed limit signs, I'm doing 90 miles an hour everywhere. Maybe dropping it down to 70 miles an hour in my neighborhood. But the only reason I not do some things is sheer restraint enforced upon me. Not because my heart is good. So, so the, government, the government has no power to look at our messed up culture right now and say, the government is going to come up. Universities can't do it. Nobody can do this. Think about a law that's going to be passed somewhere that says, I want all of you to love each other. Government law. Love each other. All hate, now we decree, will be replaced with love. The only place that has been tasked, summoned to say that is the church. And you better believe God says that in the church. All hate is replaced with love, and I summon you to love each other. And then God gives us the ability to do it because he didn't just command it, but he gives the power, the motivation power by saving us. And he saves us by reminding us of what he did for us when we hated him. This is the the power to love is found in this verse right here. Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you. He's brought you to him by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, clean, pure in his sight. I mean, the reason that I love baptism is because it is just a such a refreshing symbolic reminder of the cleansing that has occurred inwardly as somebody experiences water hitting their body outwardly. Water has no power, but the Spirit of God that has produced cleansing has a lot of power. This is the power to love right here, is to know that when you were enemies of God, He loved you. Number three, why was Paul not discouraged? Because the gospel heals spiritual blindness. It has power. 2 Corinthians 4.3, even if our gospel is veiled, covered by people, it is veiled by those who are perishing. Paul is saying, listen, if people don't believe, it's not because there's a problem with the gospel. It's not even because that Richard did a poor job of preaching Today, I told my guys in the back before they came, before we went up, I said, I don't really, don't really feel ready today, but this is all I've got. I'm going. So, but people not believing is not the result of me being a poor communicator, not by the Apostle Paul or God being a poor communicator. It's because they want to stay blind. Like I like, I like being blind. I don't want to see. You say, well, gosh, how in, the world could, how in the world could somebody literally say, I want to not see? It's a very powerful thing at work in their lives when that happens. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded 
the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see the light of the good news that displays the glory of Christ who has come to be the reflection of God. The reason that people reject the gospel, only one reason is they've been blinded by Satan. They don't feel a need. They don't see him as supremely beautiful and supremely necessary. Blind to that. When Paul calls Satan here the God of this age, that's, it's not a diss on the Lord God. It's just saying that there are more people in the world today under the influence of Satan than there are under the influence of God. That's why he's called the God of this age. John chapter 12 calls him the prince of darkness. And 1 John 5 says he's the ruler of this age. Which means he has control over more people than people who have submitted to God. And the reason for that is he has blinded them. And now they're living in spiritual darkness. And this should not surprise anybody in this room. It didn't surprise anybody in the first century. The book of John, when Jesus, one of the apostles who followed Jesus, said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness. You say, why would somebody want to stay blind? So they can stay in the dark. Because it's fun to do things, those things in the dark. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Listen, even if somebody has lost their conscience, almost lost every bit of their, almost if they're uh, no capacity, they still know right from wrong. And here's why you know that. When do most criminals do their crimes? At night. Because they know that what they're doing is wrong and could lead to imprisonment or uh, some suffering. So they say, I'm going to do this thing at night because I know what I'm doing is wrong. Therefore, I want to hide while I'm doing it. People reject the light because they want to stay in the dark. Because it's fun to do bad things in the dark. You know, everybody is asking right now, what is going on with our culture? Like there's going to be some big answer. Like it's complicated. It is not complicated at all. A wave of spiritual darkness in increasing power is coming into our culture just as an intense fog would roll off the ocean and cover a city. It's just darkness is what's happening. You say, well, it's frightening. Well, spiritual darkness is frightening. Um, how many of us are not a little bit concerned how evil has evil become? Men love darkness because they love evil. They do not see Jesus as supremely beautiful, supremely good. So they stay in the dark because there is no fear. They have no fear of what they're doing. No fear because they're spiritually blind. So, as a Bible teacher, let me tell you, in 2020, this has sort of been how much, it's, how much fun it's been to preach in 2020. 
I mean, for 27 weeks, I preached to an empty church. And we preached to a church that's coming back. It's apprehensive. Should I be there? And culture's breaking down. And you're trying to think of what to say. And bottom line is, there's nothing I can say. I don't have any power. I don't have the power to... I don't have any scale-removing power. I can't remove blindness from people's eyes. I can't say anything that makes scales come off. I don't have that power. So I need to stop trying to think of, oh, man, I really need to be good today. And so what Paul said, for we preach, what we preach is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ is Lord and we consider ourselves to be slaves for your sake. Look at Paul. Did he want to be noticed? He want to be known? Did he think he was slick? Listen, if you ask the Corinthian church, because it's in writing, they say, well, we think Paul is, is a very unimpressive communicator. They said that in the text. He's unimpressive as a speaker, and his physical presence is unimpressive. Paul said, that's fine. I don't want to be seen. I just want Jesus to be seen because he changes lives. So I just want to be a servant behind the scenes holding him up. But nowadays it seems like to grow a large church, pastor's got to be something else. He's got to be so different, so special, so cool, so novel, so esoteric. That when the people leave, they talk about him. Thank you for never having done that. That you talk about the Lord that you encountered here. So if Paul was unimpressive in appearance, and he wasn't a good speaker, how did it work? He tells us the message he preached. For God who said, let light shine out of a darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. What does all that mean? Well, it means that the same God, this is creation talk, takes us all the way back to where we were a few weeks ago in the beginning. So the same God who said, let there be light. That same God poured all of his fullness into the womb of a woman, into the baby that was growing inside her, Jesus Christ, so that when Jesus Christ was born, he was able to say, I am the light of the world. He was able to stand there in John 8 in that temple in Jerusalem and say, I was the one who, who set the sun in the sky in the beginning. I was the one who flung two trillion galaxies of stars in the universe. I am the light of the world. I am the answer. No other man can solve culture but him who's called the light of the world. And everything Jesus did was a reminder of the glory that was his and the glory that belonged to God. Everything put the, shine the light back on God. His teaching revealed God's wisdom. His miracles revealed God's power. His death 
revealed God's love, and his resurrection revealed God's sovereignty. Everything was about showing that he was the light of the world, sent by the light of the world. So you know what Paul says when he looks at this kind of verse? I don't want to build this church on me. I don't want to persuade you. I want to say, I don't want the burden of saying, I can solve the darkness in America right now with my flashlight when I'm standing next to the light of the world. I don't want to compete with him. He can do it. Therefore, I want to tell people about him because he's the one who changes society by changing lives. You know what I want to do with my life? I just want to say Jesus. I want to just say Jesus. That's why I did that Facebook post. If you didn't see my Facebook post last week, Richard Walden Smith on Facebook. We can all become friends. Richard Walden Smith. And I want you to hear this gorgeous soul from California that I just happened to see on the internet last week sing a song, Come to Jesus. Probably the best thing I've ever done with my life is put her song on my Facebook. I threw a dinosaur to Hunter in the parking lot the other day, and we caught it on film. 645 views. Silly. I put Come to Jesus on there, 1,600 views. People want to know, is there a hope for this culture? Come to Jesus. This is what I want to do as a preacher. I want to be like John the Baptist. John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! The Lamb of God, the sacrifice of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Man, I love when people come into my office and confess sin. I just love taking them to Jesus. I love calling my prayer partner and saying, this is where I struggled in my heart with my sin, and I love, he takes me to Jesus. I love transferring sin to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It feels so great to get it off because you can't do anything about it. It's there. You did it. Guilty. Get rid of it. Let him have it. The greatest preacher that I know of that's ever communicated the Bible, at least in the English language, is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He lived in London preached in the mid-19th century. There were no megachurches then, yet Charles Spurgeon, having no Bible training and was mocked by the British press for being too informal, not polished, every Sunday for 36 years in London, 4,000 people every week came to hear him preach. By the time he died... His words that he had in print and went all around the world to almost every country, every nation on earth, were numbered 20 million that he had written and preached. And what's amazing is this man at one time in his life did not know God. And the beauty of his life is how simple it was for him to get saved. Spurgeon, as an adolescent, was running from God. At age 15, January 1850, he went into the primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street in London. It was snowy. It was cold. He had no interest in in really going to church that day. He just wanted to get out of the weather. 
He walked inside. There were 15 people listening to a preacher who Spurgeon said who really didn't have anything to say. Spurgeon up to that time said, I was spiritually troubled for sure. I was despondent. I was despairing at night. I had dreams of hell. I was lost away from God. And he went into church that day, and the only thing that preacher kept doing was kept quoting this verse, Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you into the earth, for I am God and there is no other. In the middle of that sermon, that Methodist preacher looked in the back at the church and saw 15-year-old Spurgeon and said, there is a young man among us today who is utterly miserable. And young man, I am commanding you right now, look at God. Look at him. See him. Look at Jesus over and over again. Look, just look at God. Look at Christ. That's what Spurgeon said happened. Then I had this vision. Not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was, and I did believe in that moment. And he left the church, and I love what he writes about the walk home. And as the snow fell on my road home from that little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told me of the pardon I had found, for I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for heart-changing grace that falls on unsuspecting lives as snow falls on unsuspecting ground. Father, thank you for all the people through the years, like Spurgeon, who were despondent, despairing, were unsure about eternity. And by your providence, you sent them to hear somebody either say or sing Jesus. And that moment they saw the cross, they saw divine blood they saw divine love they saw a man with arms outstretched yes in pain but really stretched out for them to embrace them to bring them into the city of God to the family of God Father our culture our culture so lost so blind right now is sad a lot of angry people, a lot of hurt people. Lord, and all we can do is keep saying, Jesus, come to Jesus. Weak and wounded sinner, come to Jesus and live. No other message, no other method. Just believers. Just your frail and fragile church saying, come to Jesus and live.
Would you bring someone to yourself today saying yes to all that you are